God, for many of us, spiritual practice is, um, is foreign. Or at the very least, um, it feels very foreign. That we go through a lot of our life acting and talking and doing things. And sometimes in stretches of life, it is rare that we would try our absolute best to turn ourselves back towards you. And so God, this morning, as we do that, God, to the extent to which we can, we are here. And God, our hope, our prayer, is that you would come and meet us in these moments through, through music, through communion, through silence, through prayer, through the scriptures, through the friendships and the community we have as we share the same air. But God, just the same way that you came into our world and you showed up in body and you walked on our soil, God, we pray that you would show up, that you would meet us and you'd come find us. Jesus, this morning, as we think about what it means to be followers of you and what it means to be people who look more like you, God, as we think about being a church, a community of people that looks increasingly like you, and that loves our neighbors better than we ever have. God, I pray that you would be our strength, that you'd be our guide, that you'd be the force behind um, our will to love others. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, let me welcome you uh, to Church of the City. This morning um, is a bit irregular of a morning. Um, irregular, uh, but also, I'm hopeful, quite good. Before we get to our time in the scriptures, we need to have a, a bit of a family conversation as a church. So if this is your first time with us, welcome to the family conversation. Um, if you've been with us for some time, uh, then again, also welcome to the family conversation. Um, I need to start somewhere that some of you have probably um, already started. You've already seen a bit of who we are, but we've got to talk a little bit about what we are as a church before we can talk about what's coming next. And, and there's a reason to all this, so hang with me for a second. Some of you have seen this image before of three circles. And some of you are probably nauseated by this picture because you've seen it so many times. Um, but in essence, uh, in an attempt to try to articulate what it is we are about as a church, as a community of people, um, we just tried to put it in like a sense of something visual. Um, it's not perfect. Um, it is, in and of itself, just a tool. Um, but these three pictures, or these three, three circles as a picture, represent for us something central for who we are. Um, that we are people who are, again, relentlessly committed to Jesus of Nazareth, this teaching rabbi who claims to be God in flesh and bones. And we hold it, we ascribe to that as being true. That is the core of what we are and who we are. Now, what Jesus said is he comes, he comes and he says, I am good news. I am goodness. I am the goodness of God walking on earth. And so trying our, our best to like, okay, what do you mean by that, Jesus? What is your goodness? And so the only place we have to look at that is the life of Jesus himself. What did he say? What did he do? How did he treat people? What hope did he give away? And so for us, um, we've adopted an understanding of what that gospel is, that goodness is, as, again, the central concept of who we are as a group of people. And it has three aspects to it. The first one is something that has to do with growing. That what we see Jesus do on a regular basis is connect deeply with his father, he prays, he's in the scriptures, he goes to temple, he's part of the synagogue. He does a lot of the normative things that we'd say that would connect someone deeply to God. But more than that, it's not just he's a good religious person. Um, he's far more than that. 
we see him also not just grow, but we see him love people. And this is a huge part of this so radical about what Jesus is. As God shows up in flesh and bones, he's willing to include people in his community, people you wouldn't expect, fishermen, tax collectors, women, Pharisees, people who are zealots, who are on the fringe of society. He says, come be a part of what I'm doing. And that is good. That's good news for that person. It's good news for us. It's good news for humanity. The third part of this is we see Jesus regularly serve or give away the kingdom, either verbally saying things like preaching sermons, like the kingdom has shown up on earth. The king is right here. I'm here. God is here. Or through action, we see him healing people. We see him connecting deeply with people who are outsiders, step in the gap between a woman who's going to be stoned to death because of a decision that she made. We see Jesus regularly serve people. Now these get blurred, and that's why they overlap. They're, they're all kind of confusing as they fit together, but yet we can see some distinction in these aspects of what we see Jesus do. Now for us, if all of these are in view at the same time, then at the core, what we are and what we have is a gospel-centered community. And we're fighting for this as a church. What Rhea shared in the communion thought, or in the welcome and communion thought, thanking you as a community for engaging with us as we served last week in the city of Portland uh, is because we hold as a value that we can't just sit here and become, I'm gonna use a word that's probably not kosher, but we've become fat Christians. We're fat on the knowledge of God. We're fat on the ideas of Jesus. We, we take it all in, we ingest it, we hold it, we hoard it, and we don't know what to do with it. High on the hog. We live high on the hog of the knowledge of God, absolutely. And we don't give it away, or we struggle to give it away. And so we try to put form to it. What's it look like to love our neighbors through praying for and picking up trash at Lincoln High School three blocks away? What's it look like to go to the Shamrock Run and serve people by digging through their trash to get recyclables? What's it look like to write notes of encouragement to the teachers and faculty and staff at a high school full of teachers who go underappreciated? You are living the way of Jesus by engaging, serving. Now, this together is an attempt, it's not perfect, but an attempt to stay deeply connected to Jesus not just the knowledge of Jesus, to live like Jesus. Now, for us, we have an identity statement that flows out of it. So I'm gonna put it on the screen. Don't feel like you have to memorize this or catch all this. This is what we've been working from since the beginning as a church community. The, the gospel is growing us into something. That the goodness of God is changing who we are. It's shaping the way we think. And there's three aspects to it. To be an inclusive community of diverse people, i.e. loving other people, Samaritans, tax collectors, Pharisees, people who are otherwise not included. As we learn to love God, that means we grow. We become deeper entrenched in our love affair with the God who created us. As we live the ways of Jesus among our friends, family, and neighbors, i.e. serving. Now I put this in front of you for this reason. This identity statement is bound by a lot of aspects, but there's a core identity here that I want to point out, and it's the word community that at the heart of what Church of the City is, of what you are, what I am, what we are, is we are a community. And we said it over and over and over again. We're not a Sunday morning service. We're not a building. We're not a, a, a time slot. We're not a, a worship moment. We're not a sermon. We are a community, which the very word church, ecclesia, it's a gathering of people. It's not a time or an event or location or service. It's people, it always has been, and it always will be. The reality is that we are a community. And the question is, what kind of community 
are we? Or what kind of community will we continue to be? What are we growing into? And for us, again, the gospel is saturating this. Jesus is at its core. We have to be a community wrapped up around Jesus, around his life, his ways, his rhythms. Now, there's a two-dimensional kind of thing going on here. And anyone here a bicycle rider, a cyclist? My daughter lately has been um, claiming to be a bicycle rider. She doesn't have pedals yet. She has one of those bikes you can you know, push with your feet, a coaster bike. Loves it. She's super, super good at it. And she's, when she's on her bike, she refuses to kiss mom and dad because bikers don't kiss mom and dad. In a four-year-old's mind, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, so the, the in, on a real bicycle, like when, when you actually have pedals, um, there's something happening constantly that you're probably not aware of. Um, you always have one foot forward. Right? Like you can't have both feet forward on a bike. It doesn't work. It's broken if you have both feet forward at the same time. Your pedals functionally are not working for you. But you always have a foot forward and you're just you're constantly stroking through that motion, right? You know that feeling. Swimming, I guess the swimming motion too. But pedals, I'm a cyclist, so that's what comes to mind. We as a church have two prongs of who we are. And if you've only come on a Sunday morning, then you've you've only seen one of the pedals of what Church of the City is. The other part of who we are is we are a church that doesn't just meet here. So let me put a picture for you up on the screen. Um, You've seen something like this before, but just two arrows in a circle. Pedal, right? One that we're very familiar with, one aspect of being this kind of church is that we we gather together. In fact, we have chosen language. We don't typically call this a church service. We do that for people who are coming from church land to try to understand what we're doing when we get together. But for us, more specifically, this is a gathering. It's a gathering of people because it's focusing again on the community life not on whether we had the right song or whether the person preaching was doing their knockout best job. It's functionally a gathering of humans sharing the same air wrapped up around Jesus. We've gathered. Now, that moment is an event. It absolutely is. It does have a time and a place and we get together. It's impossible to do this otherwise. But we also have admitted that if we're gonna live to the fullest extent of loving Jesus and following Jesus in Portland, we have to do the opposite really well, too. We've got to scatter really, really well. And so there's two levels to that. One, you leave here and you're an individual, you go about your life, you've scattered functionally. You spend more time away from this community than you do with this community. Now that may not be true if you have someone in your household, maybe a spouse or a friend or something where you share a lot of time or a good friend that you're around a lot, maybe that's not true for you. You share an aspect of the communal life with them. Or dual resident. The The concept here that I think we have to hold on to is it's very challenging to scatter well. A lot of us feel adrift when we leave the church, when we leave time with the church. And so one of the things we've put together are these groups of people. We call them gospel communities. I mean, you can get a a sense of language here, right? Like we're pretty committed to the good news, to what Jesus is. We've formed groups of people that gather all across the city during the week, in an attempt to live this rhythm of grow, love, and serve consistently. Now, I share all that with you for this reason, and this is where I need you to check back in if you've gone you know, somewhere else in your mind during all of that identity talk. We as a church have been privileged to have consistent gathering space here at the West End Ballroom for four years. It has been stable and healthy and good. The issue is, um, that is changing. Uh, we are not confident that we're gonna be able to stay in the West End Ballroom indefinitely. In fact, we're fairly confident that, that that's gonna be a change coming fairly quickly down the road. 
We don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly where. But we are putting feelers out all across the downtown core of the city for other meeting spaces that make sense for our community. The, the kind of the tip of the iceberg for all of this has been a real challenging relationship with the management that runs this place. It came under new management. They inherited us as a community using their space, and that's just a funny fit. Several things have happened uh, at different intervals. Um, one of the biggest ones is we don't have uh, a privileged time on Sunday mornings to meet consistently. So you were handed a card on your way in, a blue card, um, about April 7th. On April 7th, we don't have a rental space here at the West End Ballroom. So instead of scrambling and finding another venue, and there are other venues we can rent, um, we decided to actually lean into our identity a little bit deeper. We are not just a gathered church, we are a scattered church. And so you notice on that card is a list of every one of our gospel communities. If you're not part of a gospel community, we're going to encourage you to find the one that's closest to you on that Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and engage with it. And you can find out details by emailing the person that's listed there as a point of contact. If you want to see a map of this, we've linked to that on our website. You can go to our website, and there's a bar at the top with a link. You can click on it, and you can see a Google map where all of our GCs roughly are. That's not the exact address. We don't give people's home address away. And you can email um, about that, but that's two weeks away. In two weeks, we will not be here in the West End Ballroom. But here's fundamentally what I want to, to make a point of in this moment. Because ahead of us are potentially some challenging times. We may not have a Sunday morning home on a regular basis. We may shuffle around a bit. We may change time slots. We may become a Sunday night gathering church. But here's the point. None of that is who we are. We are not a service. We are not a building. We are not a time slot. We're not even a day of the week. We are a community of people committed to the ways of Jesus to the teachings of Jesus and the hope of Jesus. And none of this actually, honestly, is unsettling. I look at it as we have a tremendous opportunity to live out our values as a community of people following the ways of Jesus. And so coming up, again, on the 7th, um, we won't be here. And on further down the spring, um, we are going to be looking for more space. I want to put the, the feeler out to you. Um, because this isn't just something that um, our leadership can handle. Uh, Sarah and I are very committed to this process and pursuing God's best. Our leadership team around us is committed to pursuing the best option for us as a church, but there are opportunities out there that you know about that we don't. If you know space in downtown core that could be rented that makes sense for Church of the City, shoot us an email. Let us know. Um, but I want to drive it home with this. I want to put a picture on the screen. It's from a few weeks ago. Um, it was our church birthday, and we took a picture of our community. Um, if you weren't here that weekend, that's okay. It's representative. Um, but what this is, again, is a picture of what we actually are, who we actually are. This church did not exist four years ago. Whether you like it or not, whether this is your first time here or you've been here all four years, you are a founding member of this community. You are a central part of what God's growing through this church, through its mission. And as we lean into that, if we're willing to lean into that, it's going to get heavy at times. We're going to have to carry more weight. There are more people who don't yet know who Jesus is or who are disconnected from Christian community who will find Jesus 
and connect deeply with you in the coming years. I was thinking about this, and I've shared this before at different intervals. Um, the church down the block from us, uh, First Baptist Church, is over 150 years old, and we're four years old. So we're barely out of diapers, okay, just relatively speaking. I hope and I pray that there are committed people loving the city of Portland through this community, looking back over the decades at you, grateful for your work, grateful for your sacrifice, grateful for your commitment both to Christ and this city, your commitment to each other, your commitment to the neighbor next to you who desperately needs to know they're loved by God. I hope and I pray that the legacy we're forging right now is a game changer for people in our city for a long time. These small hiccups, in retrospect, they're just hiccups. They aren't significant. But they do give us the opportunity to live into who we actually are. So I'm inviting you to come on a journey with us. I'm inviting you on the 7th not to take the Sunday off. If anything, do the opposite. Take the next Sunday off and the Sunday after it off. I don't care. But let's live into our values of being a scattered church, following Jesus well in the city of Portland. Fair? Everyone understand what we're talking about? Any confusion on the table? We're wide open to questions. If you want to sit down and talk with either Sarah and I, we're going to do that with you. We want to do that with you. Um, if you want to send an email or start a text conversation or whatever works for you, please engage. Please, please, please engage. Now, this is always the awkward time. We've had family conversation. We still have some time left to focus around the scriptures, but it's much shorter. So we're going to transition simply by, by praying. I want to pray a blessing over this church, and I want to open again our, our minds, our souls, our hearts to what God is forming in each of us individually and in us as a community. So if you would, join me and pray. God, this morning, man, what a joy it is to follow you, to be a part of what you're doing in the city. God, thank you for giving us such a firm foundation, the shoulders of a lot of women and men who have been following you for a long time in this city. God, thank you for four years. Just beautiful life together, a transformation, hope of goodness. And God, we pray. We pray that you would continue to form our ideas, our actions, our relationships. God, specifically around what it means to be a gathered church, when, where, how. God, we're praying for the opportunity that you already know about, that you already have in mind, and that you've already provided. Help us be wise. Help us be faithful. Help us follow you really well for the coming months wherever you lead us. We love you. Pray in your name. Amen. Amen. We've, we have been in 1 John for some time. And we are coming near the end of this writing. Uh, we are in the last chapter. Um, and if you recall, this wasn't originally a chapter book. This was a letter. Um, so in the letters movements, we are right here at the big idea of what John has been writing about. Now, we've entitled this whole, this whole series um, In the Flesh because one of John's biggest concepts here is that God showed up. And if you read back through his gospel, he starts his gospel the same way. He has a whole initial like, introduction, first chapter for us, 
a whole introduction in the narrative about Jesus, just talking about the idea that Jesus showed up. And one of my favorite paraphrases by a guy named Eugene Peterson, talking about that moment in, first, in, the, in the book of John, when John says Jesus showed up, is he paraphrases and says, he moved into the neighborhood. It's such a powerful picture of what God does through the incarnation. He moves in next door. He becomes a part of the human story. If you think of it, a God who creates does not have to become part of the story. He is altogether other. He's different. He doesn't have to be a part of what is happening in the created order of things, especially when things have gone off the rails, when things are a mess, when things are at an all-time low. And at different intervals, there have been moments where the decision had to be made. Does God just destroy what's been created, or does he carry on? What we see come in the arrival of Jesus through this infant born in a very vulnerable position is we see God choosing a different way, a way that demonstrates that he is relentlessly in love with humanity, that he is in love with his creation. And this whole concept for John, remember, he is one of the closest friends of Jesus. He's, he's best friends with God in flesh and bones, with the Messiah, with Christ. And at first, he didn't understand who he was talking to. He comes trying to baby, basically ride on the coattails of this rabbi saying, come and be my disciple. And through a relationship with Jesus, he becomes keenly aware that who he's talking to is distinctly different than anyone else he's ever talked to before. Now, Jesus has long since left earth. Remember, he is unjustly murdered, he is buried, and then the power that he possesses to overcome death is enacted. We have resurrection, hope. Jesus exists on earth with his disciples and friends for 40 days, and then he leaves earth, and he basically says to his friends, it's your turn. I have demonstrated who I am, what I am, and now you carry it forward. My kingdom has come, and now you bear it. You bring it to action in your space, in your time, in your relationships. So John is one of these guys, as a close friend of Jesus, who takes that extremely seriously. As he starts this, what we call ministry, but for him just like way of life, to live the way of Jesus, he starts leading Christian communities. I mean, there was no, nothing existed that we have right now. There was no church, there was no services, there were no gatherings. Christians decided at that point, people who are wrapped up in the Jesus community they decided we actually have to do this. We want to do this. We want to be a part of what Jesus started then, still in the here and now. And so John emerges not just as a friend of Jesus, but as a vocal leader among these new enclaves of Christians. And for some time, he's in Jerusalem. Then he goes to Ephesus. And as tradition has it, he takes the mother of Jesus, Mary, with him the whole time. He takes her into his home. John, though, strangely, outlives the rest of the disciples. The rest, systematically, one by one, are murdered for following Jesus. And John has spared that case, if you recall. But he lives a long life where he's persecuted, he's arrested repeatedly. At one point, he's even banished to an island called Patmos. He lives a long life into his 90s. And over that period of time, what comes of it are writings like this, where John is trying to distill down what is the core of all of this? What is at its essence? And he's been saying through this letter, repeatedly, that Jesus showed up. We get to this point, we get to this place right here in the letter, where he is building on his crescendo. 
everything he's been driving at coming into view in this passage. If you have a Bible, go and open it. We are in 1 John chapter 5. We're just going to read this passage slowly, just two parts to it, and unpack it for a minute. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We provide it for you on the screen. Uh, if you want to use your phone, you're welcome to. A lot of people do. But John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Now this, this passage, let's stop there for a second. This passage is like a lot of John, repeating some content that we've seen previously. If you remember the, the illustration, this is like a slinky that's been drawn out. It moves somewhere, but it kind of goes in circles as it gets there. And John is trying to, to reiterate this concept. And it's, it's all about identity. And for him, identity is wrapped up in relationship. And he says that we are in relationship with God, and we know that we're in relationship with God when we love God's children. Initially, Jesus, his child, and then spreads out to humanity. And John puts that into a category here and says, that in essence is keeping the commands of Jesus. And those commands are not burdensome. They're not heavy. They're not overwhelming. As I thought on this passage this week, I was really wrestling with, what is John referencing here when it comes to the commands of Jesus? And this passage that we've, I feel like we've like beaten like a tired drum, and yet I feel is at the center of what John understands and what we ought to understand as the core command of Jesus. So I want to take you on a journey for a second to try to make sense of this passage in 1 John. I want to go back to the life of Jesus in this moment. You can find it in Matthew. And, and this moment in the life of Jesus it unfolds in, in kind of a classic Jesus fashion. He's been to the temple all day. He's been, you know, arguing with religious leaders all day, and they've been challenging him. And he's, it's starting to become very obvious that Jesus is claiming to be something other than just a teaching rabbi from Nazareth. He's claiming to be the Son of God, Messiah, Christ. And that's a big deal. That becomes blasphemy. And so there's this real challenge back and forth in the rhetorical system that day, in that day on the temple grounds. And so Jesus are back and forth with these religious leaders. And then becomes, it comes to light that there's this like challenging question that is dropped on Jesus' lap that in that day and age was the unanswerable question. I have it for you on the screen. We're going to pick it up uh, in verse 34. So Jesus all day had been arguing with the religious leaders and was winning. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And there's two different religious leadership groups um, of the Jewish people. One of them said, who was an expert in the law, or excuse me, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, if you remember back, these are Jewish people. Our Old Testament is their Bible. The New Testament doesn't exist. They're living it in the moment. So they're referencing in the Old Testament, in the, old, the original covenant, in the covenant of the day, what is the most important law? Now, the first five books of our Old Testament we call Torah, and that means law. And it's the giving of the understanding of how things started, the origin story, Genesis means origins, and then the unpacking of how God's people were 
cemented and crystallized on earth? And then from that, what is God's intention for humanity? And, and what was given them was a series of laws. In fact, 613 unique commandments. And this question in the first century, a few thousand years later, Jesus is asked, which of the 613 is the most important? Now, this is a tough question to answer. And if you've been around, you've heard me say this before. It's tough to answer because the Jews held that every word uttered from the mouth of God had equal weight. So one command cannot be more important than another. And so every religious leader is having a hard time answering this question. So different kinds of leaders had different kinds of answers to kind of skirt that particular issue. And so what they're expecting is to Jesus for Jesus to do the same, that he's going to skirt the issue. And he's going to demonstrate he's just human. If you're human, you're bound by an inability to say any part of God's word is more or less important, because by doing so, you're saying a part of God is more or less important than another part of God. And if he's willing to say one part is more important than another, then he is blaspheming. He is somehow denigrating the name and identity of God. And Jesus, with tremendous courage, leans in and says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, this is treacherous territory. This is found in Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema, and it comes from the word hear, because this passage starts with that, that word, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. This, this particular phrase is well known among Jewish leaders. And Jesus steps in, he leans in, he says, this is it. This is the first and greatest commandment. Well, it isn't the first in order. He's saying it's first of importance. And it's greater than every other commandment. But as if that wasn't courageous enough, he goes to bat again and says, but there's a second one. It's not just one. The second one is this. Love your neighbor the way you love your selfish, narcissistic, self-serving, self-involved self. You see the lost translation a bit, but it's there. <laughs> the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What happens next is, is pure silence from the religious leaders. There is no argument to be had from this particular point of view. The Jesus demonstrates this is the core of everything God has been doing with humans. Deep, intimate connection with God and deep, intimate connection with each other. We call it love. Love God with your whole being, every aspect of who you are. Go deeper. Understand him more. Let him understand you. Create intimacy. Find intimacy. Understand you are loved by God and reciprocate it by loving God back. And love the people around you. Love the people who share earth with you. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Now, I feel like this is like beating a tired drum because we say this a lot. I, a while ago, um, about a decade ago, um, I watched a, a video uh, on YouTube of a church in Michigan. Um, and it's a fairly, it was a sizable church, but they were meeting in a, a grocery store at the time. And um, they, they did this thing, and it was irrelevant to this, it just is a beautiful picture to me. They did this thing where in the middle of the service, and the way they set it up, um, because they had pillars like this, is they put the stage in the middle of the room and put people all around the outside of it. So the teaching, teaching pastor is like turning in circles the whole time. 
um, trying to like make sure everyone can like make eye contact because that's what you do. You make eye contact with people, make them feel really awkward while you're teaching them. <laughs> and in the middle of his teaching, um, at one of his points, um, a a guy from a drum line, one drum, comes out and just starts beating his drum, a snare, coming out into uh, this room, massive room. Um, I don't know why this is the case for me, but drum lines always get me weepy. Does anyone else have that problem? <laughs> I, I don't understand why this is the case. I'm watching this video and I'm getting emotional with this drum coming out. And I feel like that's kind of where we've been like saying this, like love God and love people around you. But then what happened next was it wasn't just one drum being beaten as, as it kind of feels like at first. Coming out from the edges all over the room is the rest of the drum line. Every single drum of a high school drum line. Just overwhelming the room with the sound of the drums. I feel like that's what John is trying to do here. From Jesus, there's this drum being beaten of love God and love your neighbors. But what John is trying to amass, what he's been trying to do in his writing, what he's trying to accomplish by saying, I know Jesus really, really well, and I want you to know him the way that I know him. Love God and love your neighbors. See, this isn't an overwhelming or tired drum. This is the drumbeat of the kingdom of heaven. Everything, Jesus says, hangs on these two commands. I think for us as followers of Jesus today in Portland, we have to hold on to this as our core identity. There are a lot of things we do talk about, a lot of topics we talk about as followers of Jesus, and they're important topics. But none of them rises above this. And John is drawing us in to holding at the core of who we are to love God and love the people around us. I think for a lot of us, we get caught in the weeds of American Christianity. Yeah, your finances are important, and we should talk about those. We should talk about those in light of loving God and loving your neighbors. Yes, what, where you work in the world and where you choose to apply yourself really, really matters. We have to talk about that in light of loving God and loving your neighbors. Yes, what house you buy is important. What apartment you rent, where you spend your free time, the way you relate to people around you, they're all very, very important but we get lost in the weeds of creating forms that we adopt and baptize as Christian. You can only do it that way. And we lose sight of the source, the core, the essence. And yeah, this drum has been beaten for a long time, but rightfully so. This is the epicenter of who we are as followers of Jesus. And if it isn't, then we have a decision to make. We have to decide, will we realign with the center of what it means to follow Jesus? Or will we continue down a different path, building a different form of religion? And if we do that, what we've created is something altogether different than Christianity, than faithfully following Jesus, than the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. For us, this church, this community, we are relentlessly committed the ways of Jesus. Everything else, be damned. We have to, without question, commit ourselves 
to loving God with our whole being and loving our neighbor as best as we humanly can and then some. So John goes on and he finishes this small section with some powerful concept. He's, he's just said, keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And for John, his perspective of the world is anything opposed to the ways of Jesus. That anyone who holds this as the centerpiece of who they are has already overcome the world around them. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now that word even translated in Greek, it means especially, particularly, our faith our trust, our relentless commitment to the ways of Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, for, for John, what he's trying to accomplish here, he's trying to cement in us what our identity is, that we are wrapped up in the way of Jesus. And what that does is it means the world that is painful, abusive, harmful, and broken has already been overcome. Now, I realize there are some days it doesn't feel like it's been overcome. Following Jesus at some points does not feel like victory. Working through this process with just renting space for a Sunday morning and being a Christian doesn't feel like victory some days. Some days it feels like, man, the cards are really stacked against us and that kind of sucks. But what John is reminding us of is that that really is, like I said earlier, very insignificant. It's a hiccup. I'm not trying to minimize or, or over-trivialize the fact that we have pain and brokenness in our lives. I'm trying to point us towards something that is more robust, more complete, and more hopeful than that pain. And what that is is the fact that Jesus showed up in the flesh to demonstrate how valuable you are and the people around you are. This is the center of who we are. God loves humans. And we get a choice what we do with that. Do we respond in kind and say, yeah, I accept that love and I love you back. And from that relationship, will we love the people around us? And if we do what John is saying, is that we've already found victory. The world cannot compete with that. The brokenness and the pain and the sin and death of our world cannot compete with the love that God has demonstrated towards humans. So here's my challenge. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, wherever you are in trying to locate yourself in relationship to who Jesus is, this, I believe, is the story of scripture. This is the central tenet of Christian faith. Make an informed decision based on this. Not on the way Christians have treated you in the past, or the way religion has felt overburdensome at times, or overliberalized at times, or the way Christianity has hurt people that you know, or the way it feels boring to show up at church on a Sunday morning. All of those things are not the essence of what it means to be Christian. To respond to the love that God has demonstrated through loving him back and loving the people around us. That is it.
And that is where victory is found. Let's pray together. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for going the distance, crossing the barrier from the divine to the human and showing up here to show us in flesh and bones how much you love us. God, thank you. Thank you for just being you and doing what only you could do. And God, I pray I pray that we would be found as a community of people mimicking that love, responding to it because you've demonstrated how much you love us and love the people around us. God, I pray that we'd be found diligent, faithful people living into what it means to love you and love people around us. Help us. We need it. We need your strength. We need your courage. And God, we need your hope. Pray all this in your name.